This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Uh, find Matthew chapter 9 in your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one around you somewhere. And if you're up on the front row, maybe somebody behind you can hand you one. Or if you're sitting in a blue chair, there's one underneath your seat. So, um, but grab a Bible, find the ninth chapter of Matthew. Uh, we're in a series uh, this, uh, today that we're going through this fall called Freedom from Religion. We're going to look at a great story this morning. Matthew, maybe you know him mostly as the guy who wrote the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Same Matthew. This is his story. But before Matthew was a follower of Jesus, Matthew was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman Empire's IRS. And believe it or not, in their day, tax collectors weren't everybody's favorite people. Can you imagine that? If they weren't crooks, and it seems like based upon what we read in the Bible, most of them were because they would take often more than what the government required and stick it in their own pockets. Another famous tax collector, by the way, in the, in the New Testament gospel stories of, uh, of Jesus was a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. You remember him? Matthew was one of those tax collectors. If they weren't crooks, everybody thought they were. They skimmed off the top. Uh, They kept it for themselves. And and beyond that, what really made them a people, a group of people who were despised by the Jews was the fact that tax collectors worked for the Roman government. They resented the Romans, the Jews did. I mean, they were with the Romans there in the Roman Empire. The Jews were a people under the authority of a foreign power. And a Jew like Matthew, who worked for the Romans, was seen in the eyes of his own people as pretty much nothing better than a traitor. He was a sinner of the worst kind in most people's minds in Jesus' day. Yet, in this story, Jesus is going to stop at Matthew's desk, where he's collecting taxes, and he's going to say to him, I want you to come with me. I want you on my team. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, now let me stop and say, where is there? There is where we were last Sunday when Jesus, when the, when the, remember the four men brought the paralyzed man to Jesus and he forgave his sins and healed them. From that house, from that location, Jesus passed on and he saw a man walking down the street. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means, quoting from the Old Testament. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, there must have been something about Jesus' call to follow him that was compelling 
This isn't the only story. Matthew is one of them. But it's not the only story where Jesus came up to total strangers. Peter and Andrew and James and John, the fishermen, he came up to them, they're mending their nets on the docks there in Galilee. And Jesus comes up to them and says, you, you, I want you to follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets, it says, and followed him. Here's Matthew, another man, a stranger that Jesus walks up to on the street, just a man on the street kind of thing, and says to them, hey, come with me. And he did so without hesitation. Doesn't sound to me... Overly complicated, does it? Follow me. I mean, how? No hoops to jump through, no rigmarole, just, hey, come on, go with me. By the way, I think that's the same call that he gives to every one of us who believe in him. But how many of us, I'm going to ask you to look deep inside today at some things. How many of us respond to Jesus' call like Matthew did? And unhesitatingly go where he goes and we do what he does and we imitate him and we follow him and his teaching and his example. How many of us respond to that call like Matthew did? His call to Matthew is a shock to the religious crowd. If you can understand the picture, he's just been to this house where there's a great big crowd and he's forgiven this man's sins and then he said to the man last week, we saw in Matthew 9, pick up your bed and walk and the man got up, paralyzed man, got up, stood up on his feet, picked up his stretcher and went home. And now these religious people who are coming, we're told in the other gospels, they came from as far away as Jerusalem, 70 miles away, to track down Jesus and follow him and see what he was up to. They're just kind of going with him as Jesus travels around and walks around town. Everywhere he goes, they're going to inspect everything he does and everything he says. And his calling out Matthew is stopping and speaking to a tax collector shocked them. No one saw it coming. I don't think Matthew saw it coming. I think Matthew may have looked up and he saw a group and he maybe identified some of these people as religious people and he probably just put his head down. He didn't even want to look at them because he knew these people hate me. These people scorn me. I am, I am the, the dust of the earth to these people. I, I am the scum to these people because of what I do. I don't think Matthew saw it coming. He was used to being scorned, especially by the real religious people. No self-respecting religious Jew would ever stop and strike up a conversation with him, much less invite him to come with them. I think what shocked them even more was what happened next. Luke's account of the story tells us that Matthew, he was, he was known, Luke uses his other name, Levi. A lot of the guys in the Bible had more than one name. You know, Peter was Simon, and then he was Cephas, and, and Matthew was Levi, and so forth. The, the, I guess maybe there's a nickname or something, or their witness protection program. I'm not sure what's going on there. But, but he was known as Levi, and Luke uses his, his name Levi, and Luke says that Matthew invited Jesus to come into his home for dinner and have dinner with a lot of his sinner friends, people with whom he was comfortable, people just like him, lots of tax collectors we just read, people that didn't judge him for what he was doing, people that just accepted him, even though they were people just like him, even though they were equally sinners with him. 
He invited them to come. I want you to meet Jesus. I, I want you to, to see this, this man that, that's changing my life. They were people in this dinner that a rabbi or a Pharisee would not be seen dead with. Luke, in fact, tells us this dinner that Matthew arranged was, a, in Luke's terms, were, were, it, was a, it was a grand banquet. I mean, he went out and he hired the caterer kind of a thing. And he had all the good food there and, and uh, plenty of it because he was excited. Matthew that day found that his life was being changed and he wanted his friends who were in the same boat with him. He wanted his friends to meet the one who was changing him. And so there's Jesus in Matthew's house, sitting with Matthew around the table at supper, surrounded not by the religious people, but surrounded by those people the religious rejected. Well, this crowd's been following Jesus around, and they weren't invited by Matthew, and so apparently they weren't so much inside there with Jesus and some of his disciples. They're outside of the house, and they gathered, and they had a complaint against Jesus. Now, the complaint was with Jesus, but note that they don't go to Jesus to ask about what's going on. They go to his disciples, and most likely his disciples, because this is kind of all new to them as well, they ask him a question, why does your teacher eat with the, with the sinners like this? You know, they're kind of looking at each other, scratching their heads, saying, how do I answer that? You ever get a question by somebody about Jesus, and you really don't know the answer? Where do we find the answer? We go to Jesus to find the answer about things about Jesus. Well, they complained about Jesus, and they asked him that question, and Jesus inside the house, apparently, and here's the other thing about people who are critical and people who complain, about you or about me or about somebody. They often, don't, they, they want to make the complaint to somebody else. They're not going to go directly to you with it, but they're going to say it loud enough in some way that you hear about it. Have you ever noticed that, how people are? Well, Jesus is inside and he hears their complaint. And he has an answer for them. So he looks through the window, I can imagine, or through the door, and he says, he, he puts his fork down and picks up his napkin and wipes off his, his mouth a little bit. And he says, here's the answer to your question. I came for the sick people. The people who are good, people who are healthy, they don't need a doctor. It's the sick people who did, who do. If you're taking notes this morning, that first point there is Jesus didn't come for those who have it together. Jesus didn't come for those who have it together. He came for those, look at me, he came for those who don't have it together. Yeah, you ever meet people? I do. I talk with folks sometimes and, and about, about the Lord and about, about Christ, about faith and and uh, people maybe who have none or, has, you know, their, their lives are messed up and and, and oftentimes people will say to me, they'll say, well, when I get my stuff together, oftentimes they don't use the word stuff, by the way, they use another term, but when I get my stuff together, some of you know what I'm talking about because that's what you say, when I get my stuff together, or what you've heard, when I get my stuff together, then maybe I'll be thinking about church or I'll think about God you know, but yeah, I'm not, you know, my, I'm not together yet. I'm not there yet. I, God wouldn't want me. Kind of an attitude. Jesus said, I came for those who don't have it together. The problem is this. Those who think they have their stuff together, pretty much fooling themselves. 
The Bible tells us we all have a universal need to be reconciled to God. All of us, everyone. Whether we grew up religious or not, whether we're good moral people or hardened criminals, young or old, makes no difference. Look with me at at this scripture, Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. In fact, look up at it and read it. Let's read it aloud together. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, no matter who we are. Religious people look upon themselves as somehow better than anyone else, as though there's something about them. That as God was looking down on the earth and he was seeking people to be his followers and be part of his kingdom, he looked down the earth and said, look there at that one. What a jewel. There's almost nothing wrong with that guy. I, I, I want him on my team. But as I read the scriptures and I look at Jesus' example, it seems that he was always looking for somebody different than that. That he was looking for those who had no false images of themselves. He said at one point, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. I'm looking for the lost boys. I'm looking for those that don't know their way. I'm looking for those who are confounded by life. I'm looking for the hurt and the empty, not people who think they're okay. Church has gotten a bad rap. I think maybe it's a well-deserved rap sometimes, however. When I say church, I'm speaking of Christianity here as a whole. Because there are a lot of people that I, that I meet, and maybe you meet as well at work in different places, your neighbors, they won't visit a church. They won't, hey, why don't you come to church with me? Uh, I can't go to church. I'm not good enough to be hanging out with those people. People will say stuff like that. I'm just not there. Not good enough. You know, and I have to, when I hear that kind of response, I have to ask the question, where in the world did they get that idea? Where, where did that come from? And the answer must be maybe they got it from church people who give off the air that they are better than everyone else. Your next point in your outline is this. I'm not a Christian because I'm better. That's not what makes anyone a Christian. But I do believe this. I'm better off because in Jesus I have purpose in life and I have forgiveness of sin and I have eternal life. But none of that is because I'm so special. Neither are you. I'm not special, but honestly, I have to be reminded of that sometimes. God has his ways in my life. I I don't know about you, but he has his ways in my life of humbling me when I need it. Uh, how many of you guys are married? Raise your hand. You got a wife? That's why he gave you that woman, is to keep you humbled, you know, to remind you you're not so special, big guy. In fact, you ought to look at the person. I want you to do this. Look at the person that's sitting beside you right now and just look at them and say, you know what? I'm not so hot. Go right ahead and do that. 
one man came up to me after the last gathering. He shook my hand. He said, I want to thank you for two things. And he, one thing, and then he said, and the second thing was, you got my wife to say to me that she's not so hot. <laughs> Who hasn't heard the all so common objection to Christianity being this? Well, the reason I don't want to be a Christian is because the church is full of hypocrites. You know what? There must be some truth to that. The Greek word from which hypocrite is derived is a word that means literally to wear a mask. That's what hypocrite means, to wear a mask. It means to be an actor, to be a pretender, to be a phony. One of the greatest hypocrisies is to pretend you're okay, to pretend that you're even better than others when the truth is you're not. Let me prove that to you. Have you ever had a rotten day? I mean, it really was a bad day. Things were not going good. And somebody just happened to see you and, and, and passing by and say, hey, how are you doing? And you said, I'm fine. Anybody ever do that besides me? You bunch of hypocrites. What did you just do? You put on a mask. You pretended to be something that inside you knew you were not, but you didn't want anybody to know, I'm not fine. Of course, nobody wants to be Eeyore either, you know. (laughs) If you're one of those guys, people aren't going to ask after a while. They're just going to avoid you. The religious culture of Jesus' time happened to be Jewish. They were God's chosen people, and they didn't mind telling you so, as if they had something to do with being God's chosen people. Because God had given their forefathers a land and a promise, a covenant. They felt that they were better than everyone else, yet that they totally missed their purpose, why God chose them, and that was to be a light to the rest of the world, a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6 says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And they had failed miserably in doing that. In fact, they they would rather keep to themselves what they thought was their special status with God. God wants me and nobody else. So then Jesus comes along and says to his followers, Things like this in Matthew chapter 5. This is out of the um, Sermon on the Mount. He says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Did y'all hear that thing, that noise? Can you hear it? Can I turn that off? No, it's not you, Larry. Ah, okay, that's better. Jesus said to his people, you're the light of the world. Here's what I've called you to be, a light that everyone can see, can see and glorify God. But here's the the fact of the matter, folks. We cannot share what isn't real. 
And that's what happened to Judaism for the most part. Judaism became a religion that everything was outward, and it wasn't real. But no one admit that it wasn't real until Jesus came along and forced them to look at who they really were. The Old Testament prophets had warned them against pretending John the Baptist had preached to them to change in preparation for Christ's coming so that they could follow him. He said, prepare the way of the Lord. Repent, get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. And these religious people, the Pharisees, they paid no attention to John. They wouldn't listen. Now here comes Jesus, and while they're watching, he does the unthinkable. He sits down at a table with tax collectors and sinners of all kinds and enjoys a meal with them. It isn't something he did in secret. He's transparent. He's got nothing to hide. And that's because he's real. He's not trying to be something that he isn't. So he dines with sinners. And by doing so, he does what he said. Here's what you guys need to learn. You need to learn about showing some mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. That's what mercy is. Sinners like, like us. Sinners like us are rebels who deserve God's justice. We don't deserve Jesus to befriend us, but he does. And in doing so, he exposes the fraud of religion. The Pharisees, who were strict rule keepers, they always brought their sacrifices to the temple. They always paid their tithes. And they did so always in a way so that other people would see them. If you go back and you turn back a few pages to Matthew chapter 6, This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees and their religion and making sure everybody could see what they did. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds. And he's talking there primarily about giving to the poor. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. If that's your motive for giving, if that's your motive for serving, if that's your motive for being religious, guess what? Doesn't count with God. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, I'm not saying don't do those things, but when you do them, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Apparently, when they did those things, they traveled around with a little brass band. (laughs) And every time they were about to do something really religious, somebody blew the horn, and it got everybody's attention. Everybody turned to the sound of the horn and watched as somebody did something kind, something good, some charitable deed. And all the bystanders would say, isn't that one religious guy? He said, if you do that, you have your reward. And what was their reward? You get the reward of admiration from people. But is that what it's all about? Are we supposed to be seeking the admiration from people? He said, no. Verse 3, when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you do something about that, don't make a big deal about it. Look up here, all right? Focus here. When you do something like that, who are you doing it to show off to? 
that your charitable deed, he said, verse 4, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Again, the Pharisees' religion was totally about rules and had no room for grace. By the way, what is grace? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. What is grace? Grace is getting what I don't deserve, the good that I don't deserve. The religious of our culture are sitting in churches right now this morning, Sunday morning, or if they're not, be sure their name is on some church's membership role because there's a lot of people who have their name on a church role and their membership, you know, and they go to church maybe Easter and, and Christmas and that's about it, but they are religious. And because of that, they think they're just fine. Everything's cool. Jesus said, I want you to learn. Consider this. I want you to learn what it means to show mercy. I want you to figure that out. Learn mercy, not sacrifice. It's not about what you put in the offering plate. It's how you treat people. There's no compassion. If there's no mercy, then everything else is mere formality. It's empty ritual. James, who is Jesus' half-brother, wrote to the Jewish believers, and he said, hey, you know what? Pure Unstained religion, according to our God, to God our Father, is to take care of orphans and widows when they suffer and to remain uncorrupted by this world. You really want to be the real thing, he said? If you're going to practice genuine faith, show mercy to those in real need, and you avoid the corruption of religion that does otherwise. I'm I'm so excited for our ladies, by the way. Uh, Because of this weekend's women's conference, you're going to hear from some women who are putting that verse into very literal practice in some amazing ways. Just ordinary women. Tammy Stump is one of them. She's a partner in our church. Tammy raised the funds and built an orphanage in Nepal pretty much with her own two hands. Single woman. Amazing story. Terry Zwick was given a $100 bill and told take this $100 and do something great for God with it. And Terry took that $100 bill and saw that $100 become $700,000, and with it she built a home for abused women in her community. Amazing stories. That's going to be this weekend, ladies. I hope you'll be here to hear that. I'm not going to be religious if I'm going to be free from religion. What does that look like then? I love to take these stories and say, okay, God, what does that mean in our lives today? Well, number one, if I'm free from religion, I can love anyone. If I'm free from religion, I can love anyone. Think about this with me. Are there people that are in your world, your community, your neighborhood, where you work, are there people that in your mind you think, well, you know what, he, he would never be interested in Jesus. There's no way she would ever want to listen to me share my faith story with her. She's just not into that, maybe because of their lifestyle, maybe because of their job. Are we guilty of putting taboos on people because we assume they are lost causes? We make that assumption about them, and so because we assume that, we just kind of write them off our list. Maybe think of somebody who's just totally different than you, very different. You say, nah. 
Over and over, Jesus demonstrated that he came to love the unlovable. There's the story in John 4 of the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, Jesus stayed there at the well, and this woman came out for some, to get a, a, a day's supply of water, and Jesus struck up a conversation with her. That was strange because, number one, he was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. There was great racial prejudice between them. They did not converse. They didn't have any interaction. They would have avoided each other at all costs because they were so culturally different, racially different. Not only that, he was a man and she was a woman. That, that just wasn't what happened in their culture. Men didn't hang out at the well. That was a woman's place. But there was Jesus and this woman comes to him and he has this conversation with her and he gets to know her a little bit and he says, you know what, I can give you water. That if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. And she wanted to hear more about that. He piqued her interest in what, it, what, what he was offering to her. And then he said, and then he said go, go bring your husband and let him talk to me as well. And she said... I don't have a husband. She began to put on a mask. She was religious, by the way, because she talked about her religion in that story. Puts on a mask. I'm not, I don't have a husband. He said, yeah, I know. He says, you've been married to five different men, and you're living out of wedlock with a man now. Right away, she knew this guy can see into my heart. He knows I'm not perfect. And yet he's having this conversation with me. And at that experience, Jesus, she believed that he was the son of God, the Messiah that God had promised. And she believed in him and she got very excited. She went back to town and told everyone. Jesus went to people like that. He went to people like a group of lepers. You talk about the outcasts of society, people who had leprosy, this disease that was Horrible in that how it deformed people and it was it was nasty and 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 parts of their body their fingers would fall off it was just hor- and and it was it was the kind of thing where if somebody had leprosy they were cast out of town they couldn't even come into town and they had these little leper colonies everywhere where they lived and the Jews were not allowed to go to them and and be near them except Jesus. He sought these guys out. There were 10 of them. And not only did he go and he talked to them, the Bible says he did the unthinkable and he reached out and touched them. As I read about Jesus, it seems that he goes after people that the rest of society thought were unlovable, people that everyone would stay away from. He reached out to the troubled and the marginalized and the uneducated and he loved them. He got involved in their lives and changed them. Number one, you can love anybody if you're free from religion. Number two, I can offer hope to the hopeless if I'm free from religion. I I read the story and I wonder why it was that Matthew was willing to get up from his job. That was his job, sitting there at this desk, this table, and collect taxes from the people that came. They would come to him and pay their taxes to the Roman government while he was willing to get up from this job where it was making him very wealthy And without question, follow Jesus. What would make a man do that? You have to wonder if maybe Matthew in his life was really at the point where he was ready to change, where he was over what he was doing, where he was disgusted with being a hated person in town, disgusted with being considered by everybody else scum of the earth, where he was beyond that, where he wanted something to change. Nobody wants to be hated by everyone else. Nobody really wants to make a living dishonestly. There's only a way out of the life that he lived. 
And along comes Jesus and very simply says to him, come follow me. Here's this teacher, this miracle worker who has captivated the attention of the whole population, stopping by my office and saying to me, I choose you to be one of my disciples. You're going to be a part of what I'm doing. You know, I kind of have to think Matthew was really waiting for someone to come along and offer him hope that his life could be different. And when it was Jesus who was that person who came and offered that, Matthew wasted no time getting up from his desk and leaving his hopelessness behind. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope you understand this. You have been called to be a disciple. You've been called to be a follower. God's plan is not simply for you to have faith in him and to have your eternal destiny settled, but his plan for your life is for you to learn who he is and follow him, become like him as you imitate him and his ways in your life. And then he wants you to follow his example as he did here. He wants me to follow this example and offer the same hope that he gave to hopeless people like Matthew. Offer that hope to people in your world and call them to be disciples as well. Come with me as we follow Christ. I can love anybody. I can offer hope to the hopeless. The third thing is this. I can be with them without becoming them. Here's where religion misses the point. And I know this so well because I was brought up in a religious environment that taught me stay far away from sinful people. The verse that was often quoted was 2 Corinthians 6.17 that says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing. Therefore. Now, if you're taking Sam... Uh, Sam Knight's class that starts tonight on, on getting the most out of your Bible, you're going to learn a little bit about Bible interpretation. And one of the points of that, if you're going to really understand what the Bible says, you understand what it says in its context. And you're going to learn about context. Therefore, when you see the word therefore in a verse in the Bible, the little simple rule is, I need to find out what it's there for. Why is that word there? Because it's talking about something that was just said. So I need to back up the truck and read what was written previously. Read the story that's there previously so I can understand the point of this part. And therefore, you read the context of that verse, come out from among them and be separate. It's not talking about some things that people want to make it talk. It's talking about entering into a partnership with someone who's not a believer, becoming one with that person in their values. That's why, for example, we teach and believe here at Nagsa Church that Christians should only marry other Christian people because you become one with that person. Illustrate this point of what Jesus was doing and, and my own struggle with religion in my life. Many years ago, it's been 25 years ago, Gail and I went out to eat at a local restaurant here in Kill Devil Hills, and we were told at the door that, hey, you, you know, you're going to have to wait for a table. We're full. So you're going to have to wait for a table, but if you don't mind waiting, we've got some seats at the bar, and you can go sit at the bar and have a drink or something while you're waiting for your table. And uh, I said to the woman, uh, who, the hostess, who also happened to be the owner of the restaurant, 
I said, you don't understand. I'm a Baptist preacher. We don't sit at bars. What would it be like if someone came in and saw a Baptist preacher sitting at your bar? That's not what you would want, is it? And she kind of went, oh, I guess not. You see, my Pharisee background caused me to reply that way to this woman. How's it going to look for me to be sitting at a bar? You know what was going through my mind? I was thinking like those religious critics outside of Matthew's house. Now follow this with me. I have learned since that I am free from that religion. Now, today I have no problem sitting at a bar to eat dinner or to eat lunch and strike up a conversation with the bartender, strike up a conversation with someone sitting on my right or my left. And I thank God that smoking is now outlawed at bars because, you know, before I would try to sit at a bar and I couldn't breathe, you know. I don't have any problem going into a place like that and, and, you know, and to do that, I don't have to go and order a mixed drink or, or even a beer. I can drink my Diet Coke or my iced tea just fine. But being seen at a bar and talking with someone who is drinking would only be offensive to someone who's bound up in religion. So if I go to a bar and I sit down maybe to watch a football game or maybe to eat lunch, and I'll sit down next to somebody who's having a drink. I don't mind doing that because I go there, hear me. I go there to be with them. I go there to build a relationship with them. And that I hope will result in their finding Christ. I do not go there to become like them. Why? Because I want to be like Christ. That's who my model is. Now, let me clarify one thing here, because some of you are saying, all right, preacher's giving me permission to go out to the bars. You don't put yourself into a situation where you can stumble and fall. Now, personally, I, have, there, I do not have any temptation to drink. I don't. And so, I, I, me sitting at a bar, I'm going to get the Diet Pepsi, I'm going to get the unsweetened tea, you know, I, ordering a beer, ordering a drink is just not going to happen because I don't have that temptation. That's not who I am. But I couldn't use that same logic of now I'm free to go and, and hang out in the place with the sinners and some of you guys are thinking, maybe God's called me to be a missionary then to the topless bar. There are sinners there, right? Why can't you do that? Well, I couldn't do that. I mean, there's no way I would do that. Why? For a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm going to use a biblical term here and then a term that everybody knows. Number one, I'm not a eunuch. Okay? Number two, and somebody said, well, what's that? And so many kids are saying, Mom, what's that mean? You can explain to them later, Mom. I'm not a eunuch. It means I got all my parts, all right? I'm not a eunuch. And number two, I'm not blind. Okay? So if I go into a place like that, and every single one of you men, it's the same thing, unless you're eunuchs and blind. All right? It's the same thing for you. Every single one of you guys, you, if you went into a place like that to be a missionary for Jesus, you'd have a hard time getting the conversation started. All right? 
It would just be impossible. Why? Because your mind would not be able to remain pure. You don't just place yourself in situations where you know you're going to be tempted to sin. Jesus could sit down and Jesus could eat with these people not because he wanted to become a thief, not because he wanted to become a liar, not because he wanted to become a prostitute. Jesus didn't go to those places so he could be them. He wanted, to be, he wanted them to know that in him there was hope to be freed from sin. We cannot lead people to Jesus either by rejecting them or by becoming them. Neither works. Number four, I can take off the masks of pretense. Religious people wear a lot of masks. Maybe you put one on this morning, because Sunday, of all the days of the week, Sunday is mask day. Get in the car, going to church. We fight in the car the whole way we get to church, and then we pull in the parking lot, we put on our Jesus smile, and everything's peachy. We get in the car, and we go to church to be a Christian, and we live at church... In this way, but we don't live the same way the rest of the week. Recently, somebody, I can't remember who it was, somebody shared with me this story of how she grew up going to church with her family every Sunday when she was a child, and, and then suddenly they stopped going to church. And she said, I don't remember when we stopped. Here's what happened. See, my dad would, would get up on Sunday morning, get himself ready, and when it's time to go to church, he'd go sit out in the car in the driveway. Mom's in the house trying to get the kids all ready to go to church, and Dad hasn't helped out at all, but he's ready to go, and he's impatient. And so he'd go out and sit, and he'd look at his watch, and then when it was time, he'd start blowing the horn. Hurry up! And he'd get real impatient. And she said, and then one way, one day, he blew the horn for the last time. And Mom said, that's it. I'm not going to church anymore. And they stopped. She said, my family stopped going to church on that Sunday. My parents never went again. She said, in fact, in less than a year, my parents got a divorce. Boy, were they wearing the masks on Sunday or what? Everything's peachy keen in our house. I can't imagine. Can you, can you imagine Jesus sitting out in the driveway blowing the horn while mom's in there trying to get the kids ready? Can you imagine that? You see, we need to be real, church. We need to be transparent. And in order to do that, that means we need to remove our masks that we put on every single day. At least we're tempted to. I am. Would you bow your head with me? Let me ask you a question with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Do you see yourself anywhere in this story from Matthew 9 about Matthew and his call from Jesus? Maybe you're, maybe you're like Matthew. Maybe you're caught up in a lifestyle that you wish could be changed. You're wanting to be a follower of hope. You're wanting to, to have something different in your life, but you're still clinging to something old, and you're looking for new direction in life. And, and let me say to you, although physically he's not in a very real sense, I believe Jesus might be standing at your desk right now to look in your eyes and say to you, come with me. Leave this behind. All you have to do is believe that he alone is, 
is your hope for forgiveness and eternal life and by faith go his way. Maybe you're not Matthew. Maybe you're more like I know I am in my life. Maybe you're a Pharisee. Are there masks that you wear to cover up who you truly are inside? Do you, are you pretending? I struggle constantly in my life with Phariseeism because of how I was taught early in my Christian life that it's all about rules. And Phariseeism shows its ugliness in me more than I care to admit. But I want you to know I'm on the road to freedom. From that, God's growing me, and I'm seeking every day to discover what life in Christ really means, and more and more the mask comes off. Are you wearing a mask this morning? If you are, when are you going to take it off and be real? Thank you, Lord, today for Matthew. I'm just, Lord, just so in awe of Jesus and his story of how he found people that nobody else wanted, it seemed like. And they became his followers. They became his disciples. They became the leaders of this incredible movement we call Christianity. And the religious people would have never given them the time of the day. They would have never given them second thought. Never given them a chance. But thank you, Jesus, that you did. And thank you that you've come to free us from that kind of religion. In your name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.